Hello listener and welcome back to the £1.92 committee where a group of disenfranchised millennial snowflakes give their semi-informed opinions on the major issues shaping the social and political discourse in the UK. My name is Al McNair and joining me as ever, members of the committee, Aaron Matthews, George Beard and James Brooke. Hello gents. Hello. Hello. Now, typically at this stage, I'll be introducing the key news events of the past week that we'd be covering in the podcast. However, on the eve of arguably the most important EU elections in our lifetimes, we felt a different approach was needed. So much of the conversation surrounding the Brexit debate focuses on the demagogues and issues that incite division and intolerance based on beliefs rather than expertise or fact. Instead, we'd prefer to make one last-ditch effort to express the positives and tangible benefits of retaining our membership with the European Union. So George, if you'd like to take it away. The topic I've sort of chosen to talk about is immigration and uh, emigration. It's quite an emotive issue, but what I'm going to try and do is just kind of take the emotion out of it and just try to look at it rationally. I I think one of the key benefits is that immigrants actually make a huge contribution to the Treasury. The report by the uh, Migration Advisory Committee estimated that European migrants made a total contribution of £4.7 billion to the public finances in 2016-17. to An average adult migrant from one of the original 13 EU member states, excluding the UK and Ireland, contributed just under four grand more to Britain's coffers than an average UK citizen. An Eastern European migrant paid an average of just over £1,000 more than the average UK citizen uh, into the government's coffers. So I think that's just a, a really important kind of point to actually, they're not just to say, you know, immigrants are not a drain on resources and government spending. In fact, they contribute more than the average UK citizen in terms of the government being able to kind of spend spend its dosh, our dosh, on vital services like the NHS. Coming over here, taking our jobs, contributing to our society. Yeah, bastards. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> supporting our NH- supporting our NHS. It's intangible, isn't it? That's always been the problem with that. Is that it's true to say that an increased population places increased pressure on public services, right? That's that's accurate. And I think the problem is a migration debate is is sometimes, particularly on the Remain side, there's an avoidance to kind of acknowledge that that is just a simple economic fact, that if you have more people, services are strain, more strained. But that assumes that no extra money or funding is spent on them. Mm. And if you're in a position where each individual migrant from the European Union and I I dislike talking about migration in terms of purely economic benefit anyway but in terms of a purely economic benefit it it just makes sense yeah so in terms of the type of sort of migrants that that tend to come over they tend to have more skills than British workers especially from what they the report calls old member states so sort of France Germany and Italy but equally figures also show sort of workers from the new member states that they are pretty much better qualified than their British peers, but actually they're not always able to use those skills to maximise how much they can earn in the UK, which I thought was quite an interesting point in that fact that we haven't actually, as a country, unlocked the potential that immigra- uh, sort of immigration brings to this country, which I actually think, you know, that's a real, there's a real case to be had there. How do we maximise the potential from all these skill sets that are coming over through workers wanting to work in this country to kind of make ourselves a more more of a prosperous country as well? 
Migration can lead to new jobs rather than competing for existing ones. So, you know, by having more ideas and kind of more skill sets coming into this country, then people are more likely to be have an entrepreneurial focus. And I think there was a stat where immigrants are three times more likely to be entrepreneurial than people born in Britain. 15.4% of immigrant adults launch their own companies just com- compared to just f- f- about 5% of lifelong UK residents. So people are choosing to come to Britain, set up a business, and then employ people from Britain, from other countries as well, to work in Britain. Well, that's a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for reducing levels of unemployment, surely. That's, that's you know, they've, they've, they've identified this country, or historically have identified this, this country as... As a, as a great location to, to do business. Why would we want to jeopardise that? I wonder as well whether that's a psychological thing. You know, if, if you've got yeah. people who are willing to take a chance, essentially, to, to, to up sticks and move to an entirely different culture and, and location, that actually they are inherently going to be more likely the type of people who take a chance in terms of, you know, their business and setting up with the risks that come with that. Just wondering aloud. Yeah, no, I think, I think there, was, there was reference to that in the report. Because immigrants tend to be coming over, tend to be of a younger age, and therefore are more uh, more likely to take risks and are more kind of open and confident to move into a new country and set up life there. So that actually that kind of spirit and entrepreneur needs is 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 very evident, sort of, with, for immigrants coming over. Just an example of the type of company that you know, there's a company called Transferwise, who essentially they're a currency exchange and the. They have got a sort of platform that allows you to send and receive money globally, sort of, sort of uh, very cheaply. And it was just set up by a, you know a couple of chaps in Estonia, but have now moved their headquarters to to London. Across the globe, they employ fourteen hundred people, many of which are are in the HQ. So those jobs wouldn't have necessarily been there if we weren't a part of of the EU as a country, because then they may not have chosen, you know, to 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 base themselves in in London. So for me, that's that's just a kind of a, a brief sort of summary of what I see are some key benefits. So not all the benefits. This is not an exhaustive list of, of benefits that immigrants bring. And there's there's certainly cultural benefits to add to that, um, and uh, sort of uh, yeah, sort of. A myriad of, of other things, uh, sort of, uh, you know, immigrants bring to the table. Well, personal and social as well. I mean, I count many of my best friends as as EU immigrants, and you know, just looking at my life now and how they've positively impacted it, I can't imagine having not met them and kind of shared those experiences with them. Exactly. You know, there's people. A lot of people's networks are built and are there because of the immigration rules we have in place, which allow people to, 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 to choose and live in this country and allow Brits to choose sort of where they want to live in, in, in the, within EU member states as well. In terms of my kind of second theme, just in terms of the clarification on, on rules regarding students, job seekers, and those just wanting to kind of move to the country, what it actually means. So let's just take job job seekers to begin with. On the EU website, it does very clearly state that if you have not found a job during the first six months of your stay, the national authority, so the UK government, can assess your right to extend your stay. 
And for this, they will want evidence that you are actively looking for a job and have a good chance of finding one. If you aren't able to satisfy that criteria, they're well within their rights to ask you to leave. So if you can't find a job, then basically it's up to the government to say whether you have to go or not. In terms of students, for staying abroad for more than three months, so you know, you're pretty much a full-time student, you have the right to live in the EU country if you are enrolled in an improved educational establishment, so university, college, whatever, have sufficient income from any source to live without needing income support. So it means that they won't have access to uh, the state coffers, effectively. When coming over here, they won't be reliant on them. And they need to have comprehensive health insurance cover. And again, if, if they don't satisfy that criteria, then it's within the, the, uh, the national authorities' right to, to say, well, I don't, think you should, I don't think you should stay here. And I think also, I think another, another issue, just to kind of almost conclude my ramblings, is, is the issue of Brits going abroad, you know, expats and retirees wanting to perhaps move to somewhere like, you know, plenty that live in Spain, for example, that decide to sort of work the remaining years of their lives there and, and, and eventually retire after that. This, this is a little bit more complicated, but essentially, you could, as an EU national, you can live in any EU country if you have comprehensive health insurance covering your host country, sufficient income to live there without needing support. And if you choose to retire there and you have worked in the country for the last year or, or have lived there continuously for three years, then that, that those sort of aforementioned things st- still apply. So effectively, you know, you can't just up sticks, move to a new country and think, right, this is my home now and no one else can do anything about it. You do have to satisfy certain criteria. There is some discretion that is still given to, to national governments to kind of assess whether, it, A, are you meeting that criteria and B, if you're not, you know, then we need to have a conversation about whether you can stay here. So there are rules in place. It isn't just open border necessarily in, in that loosest sense of the term. There are, there are sort of guidelines and frameworks that sort of countries work to. I, I personally think freedom of movement is too often looked at in the UK as a them and an us thing. You fall into very commonly a situation where freedom of movement is perceived to be something that comes from the EU as a separate thing rather than freedom of movement. What it really is is a right that's granted to each and every single EU citizen of which the entire population of this country and all of us are currently still members of. So they're they're rights of individuals. And actually what freedom of movement does is it, firstly, it diminishes arbitrary barriers to being able to have you know, social relationships across different countries and professional relationships. You know, if you end up in a situation in your life where you meet, a, you know, a guy or a girl from a different country and you want to go and make your life in that country, then what Freedom of does is it removes arbitrary barriers to you being able to do so. If you can go there and you can get a job, there's still barriers to entry in, in just basic things like, you know, language, but it removes a visa restriction which you might not be able to achieve so you know as an example freedom of movement in in, if you want to go to germany you need to go there and get a a job essentially and show that you're not a burden on the state that is a pretty basic requirement having a job means that if you're 18 and you 
you know, the only thing you've been able to do in your life is, is wait on some tables, then you can go and do it on a beach in Spain. What it isn't is an entry requirement such as the EU's blue card, which is for third third country nationals, so where you don't have freedom of movement. And if you want to move to Germany with that immigration requirement, you have to make a salary of €53,000 per year. And it's like, how how many people meet that? Immigration systems which are points-based and, and, and not based on, on something like freedom of movement inherently favour people on higher salaries and uh, with higher qualifications that your social circumstances may have prevented you from ever achieving. And, and actually, if, if your minimum requirement is there for an undergraduate degree to get into the country that you, need, you, you, know, you, you want to go to, that's another barrier to entry. And freedom of movement removes those. It, it, it enables you to have the freedom to go and take your life where you want it to in Europe, should you so desire. And that can be just going away and getting a job, or as I said, it can be that you end up in circumstances in your life, such as a relationship, where you want to up sticks and move to a different country and you don't have those those things that might stop you or might divide you there. I think that's one of the you know, that's one of the most the most powerful things. That is a right that we all have at the moment. And it's a right I think that is in, it's taken for granted. It's taken for granted because people have now had it for so long. It's just there. That's that's what the norm is. And when it's gone and all of a sudden there are things that are stopping you from being able to do that, then it's like, well, actually, you know, I do miss what we had. It's, it's you don't, you know, you don't miss it till it's gone kind of mentality. I guess the alternative of a points-based system, it almost becomes a form of social cleansing where you're only viewed upon by the state as to the financial contribution that you can provide rather than, like you say, if you are maybe not in an economic capacity, but you're also supporting one of their citizens as you might be their partner. I don't know, it seems a very black and white way to look at it. And just to kind of round this off, I think it is worth saying, you, you, you did brush upon it, George, very briefly. We're not denying the fact that in some parts of this country, it is overwhelming the number of migrants that have come in and it does change the the landscape of your local town of your local services and i think that's that's a point where there is a rational argument to be against it i think that that's that's a point when when you talk about kind of an influx of different demographics that's the point where you can get into a difficult kind of conversation about what constitutes racism um, because I think inherently when people tend to have a problem with that it's because they don't like that different culture or they don't feel comfortable around it uh, not always you know but but to me that that's something that can only be justified if there's tangible evidence to suggest that for instance you know people who come from Romania bring with them high crime rates and I don't believe that there is the evidence to suggest that. But but also, you, then you, you you fall into the traps like Nigel Farage did in 2015 with his interview with James O'Brien, where he paints every single person who comes from somewhere like Romania as being a predisposed, inherently likely, to be, a, to be more likely to be a criminal. And it's like, I'm sorry, if you're making a judgment on someone about the way they act off the basis of nothing, no information whatsoever than their nationality, then it's it's racist. <laughs> yeah. It's literally the definition of the word. And it's frustrating to me because I think a lot of a lot of that anxiety that's caused 
by, you know, I mean, I lived in Southampton. You've got areas of the city where there are large swathes of the city which are now, um, you know, this is an area where it's predominantly full of full of Polish people. But the difference I tend to find is when I walk down the street, it just wasn't a problem. Like, no. it wasn't a problem. I, you know, it wasn't a threat. It wasn't anything that made me uncomfortable. And I, I think my Great main food difference as well, is by the I, way. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I like, actually, <laughs> to me, it's an enriching of the culture that I live in, where there are different people there from different places in the world and bringing different experiences. And I think the, the, the difficulty you have is that some people do instead view that as being something that they're not familiar with and they're not comfortable about. And and that actually is possibly where there can be accusations of, of racism. Legitimately, like I said, if you're judging someone on the basis of their nationality only, if you are judging someone off, the, off of where they've come without any kind of reference to their individuality, then you are being prejudiced. I think that's controversial. I think as well it shows these prejudices exist less in places where actually there are there are more more immigrants i mean so if you look at generally when people move to to the uk they usually end up in, in cities and city centers because that's where the jobs are it's where the opportunities are people coming over are less likely to move to the middle of nowhere they're going to be in london they're going to be in birmingham they're going to be you know bristol manchester and these areas the city centers are generally the areas that voted pro you you know they vote to remain and that you know these are the people who live in and around eu migrants and actually I think as a trend generally people view it positively it's then people coming you know from more rural areas areas where there is less immigration all they get instead of having first-hand experiences of meeting you know italians germans polish people at like this and experiencing all the great things they just get all of the propaganda essentially against immigration and so their pictures mm. in their mind are of these eastern european bogeymen you know coming in here to take all of our stuff and all this kind of stuff. And actually, the reality is, is incredibly different. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always point out, I mean, it's going back to conversations I had in 2016 that, you know, it's never the immigrant that people know. It's yeah. always, it's always, oh, no, we don't mean you. It's like, who do you mean? You're, you're convinced of the existence of, of these people who are problematic, despite having no direct evidence that they actually exist in in your experience of life and then because for me it's it's the same really my experience of having worked alongside um immigrants from from all over the world is just you know we're all just humans trying to get on in life to be honest it's you know there are bad people out there and there are bad people in this city who are british and who i'm sure who who come from overseas i just don't think that where you're from inherently predisposes you to being a better or worse person. It just we're all we're all different, and and actually it's more about just acknowledging that, acknowledging that it, it, people are trying to get on. Not just acknowledging it, but embracing it. Yeah, embracing the fact that people are different. Yeah, and have yeah. different backgrounds, and you know they're not trying to enforce anything on anyone. They just actually quite often want to share their shared experience. And it's, I completely agree. It's it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, but also, as I said, I, I don't. I I think the main the main criticism of the immigration debate, full stop, is it's too often framed as a English exceptionalism thing. That is, people yeah. coming here. Yeah, uh, definitely. Rather than, I think the the thing that needs to be hammered home is freedom of movement is a right of all of us, and 
when we leave it is being taken from you and you can wave your hands and say you can still move to other countries uh, in the future and no one's saying that no one will, will be able to is will be prevented from moving to anywhere but the likelihood is it will be more difficult uh, the likelihood is if you are from poorer backgrounds it will be harder and I just don't see how that's remotely beneficial to any of us Thanks for that, George. Uh, James, over to you. Thank you very much. So today I'm going to be discussing research and innovation funding in the EU and also the, the benefits that we get from being part of this large multinational organisation in terms of UK scientific output. So as I'm sure you're all well familiar through through history and science license at school, you know, the UK is one of the, the prominent world leaders in, in research innovation. We've got a a huge tech scene here, and uh, we've also got some of the you know, most outstanding universities in the world. And you know, this can be traced back through UK history. You know, let's not get it wrong. Long before the EU, we were still great. You know, this is the country of Newton, and we've you know, come out with some life-changing pieces of kit throughout the you know the years. Debatable one, but TV originated in the UK. The World Wide Web, DNA was researched here, things like that. So it's something we should all be rightfully proud of. However. Times change, and as we've moved forward and joined the EU, there's been a greater integration of ourselves with institutions across Europe, and actually that's brought about a, a fairly seismic but excellent change because it means science has always been built upon cooperation. You know, a group of scientists working together will always output greater than a scientist working alone, and having this close integration with the European Union means that suddenly our institutions are opened up to 20 plus states worth of scientific experience, scientific funding, scientific equipment. All of a sudden, you know, we can go, we can supersize this, the science and research effort in the UK. And that's that's can only be a positive. The world we live in today is technology driven. Technology is a vast part of our lives. It's fundamental. I don't think anyone, you know, certainly in our generation could imagine a world without the internet, uh, you know, and how, how we'd... Uh, how we get by. Well, this discussion wouldn't be possible, would it? Absolutely. <laughs> listeners, you probably wouldn't be able to listen to it either without this kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, we are entirely enabled by this. Um, but in the tech market, basically, you're either, you know, you're either a maker, you either make the goods and sell them on, or you're a taker, in which case you, you take on technology from other sources. For us, it's important for us, I think, as a nation. We, as I said, we're really quite, you know, we're advanced in the technology space. And it's important for us to remain there because as we've seen sort of extensively, if you're not at the cutting edge, it means you then have to take technology from other sources. And sometimes this can be, it can it can conflict with your, your interests. We've seen this recently with the Huawei cases around the world where people are obviously suspicious of the nature of Huawei's business. Now, it's kind of a, that's that's a big case, and the five G infrastructure. Are, you know, that's a whole different debate we could get into. Possibly a libelous one as well, so we probably want to <laughs> just skim over that. <laughs> However, th this kind of scenario, if you know, by being in the EU, the UK can uh, think bigger than itself, take part in initiatives that align itself, and it means that it means we get to make the technology and you know have control over it ourselves, as opposed to being as uh, taking software from elsewhere where there might be inherent risks associated with that. And I think by by leaving the European Union. 
as I'm going to go into it, basically we're, we're reducing our ability to, to make technology and increasing our ability to, our, well, our necessity of taking technology. And it means that the issues like the Huawei case, they're only going to increase, basically. We'll, we'll suddenly be subject to a whole heap more of these kind of scenarios, basically. So in terms of the EU and science, so to, to talk about the scientific community in general, 22.2% of all researchers worldwide are in the European Union. So that includes us at the moment. And that's a large percentage of anywhere in the world. I think the figures for, for US and China, they're in second and third, respectively. They're about 19% and sort of 16%. So it shows that we're already a member of the biggest scientific market in the world. It means that, you know, we have access to, to this large amount of research. And basically, we, as being in a common scientific market, we have access to this without barrier, without trouble, as has already been covered, you know, with earlier points. And again, that can only be a good thing for the UK. To go into some of the financials of it quickly. So according to the Royal Society, we paid in the UK, that is 5.4 billion euros into the EU's science and research initiatives. However, we received back 8.8 billion. So actually, that's we've gained 3.4 billion euros worth of funding from being a member of the EU. And again, I don't want to get too much into the negative, but it's a kind of thing that that that's a great that's a big positive for us. We pay in, but we get more out of it. And it's you know it's easy to see if we leave the EU, that's a funding gap we'd have to make up in the UK. And is that is that because James? Sorry to interrupt. Is that because that the UK the kind of money's sort of better trusted with the UK because of the, the wealth of expertise we've got to kind of use that Absolutely. money. Absolutely. I mean, we have some of the greatest scientific facilities in the world here. So actually, it makes sense for the European Union to invest money back into the UK on top of already outstanding facilities. And also, the EU is happy to invest that money back in knowing that there are things such as freedom of movement, which means scientists from countries where certain equipment isn't available, certain things aren't available, but it is available in the UK, they're happy to know that they can easily take their projects, take their work over to the UK, do the work mm. here, involve UK scientists, um, you know, collaborate together, improve the, the overall knowledge of the teams and get this kind of collaboration working. And it means you get a, a greater output. So that's a great positive again for us, but it's something that will have to be addressed in the coming months and years um, with Brexit because there's going to be a gap and it means either the UK can continue to pay its set amount in to the scientific community, so that 5.4 billion, but it means then we would have less money or we could you know, increase the funding to the same level as the EU, but then we're then debatably taking money away from other courses. So again, something that pays to be taken in mind in the, in the future, but we shall see. The other thing as well is that we should kind of be proud as well of our participation in, in the scientific community and our offering of, you know, people will still beat the stick of while we're still throwing money into it, but it is absolutely worth it. I mean, first of all, in terms of, I mean, t technological and scientific gain isn't always seen immediately directly to, to people, to voters, you know, it's not like a tangible thing as opposed to things like migration or for example, legislation affecting things like pensions or other things, you know, you might not see the direct effect of a science technology uh, investment. However, indirectly, you do see this. Um, you know, scientific advancements in the UK go to advance technology and therefore society as a whole. So it's, it's a key thing to think about. You, you'll get tangible examples everywhere. You just won't pay attention to them. It'll be things as simple as when you've got in five years time a phone that lasts three days rather than less than a day because the battery technology in it has been improved, that's that's done by 
research and innovation. Um, and not saying necessarily saying that's going to be explicitly done by the EU, but you do. You, you're right. You do see it every day in life, albeit that the actual process that that it takes to get there is 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 less tangible. But also, also just in the general point, I think it links back into George's initial point that science and technology it, it doesn't discriminate. You know, the the advancement of of research and development is 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 not something that. Is, is beneficial to be to be worked on as individual countries and it's also in a historic and social context where you know the, the continent of Europe now is just made up of you know geopolitically speaking smaller nations it's just it's just true to say it's not to say that you know, to diminish or denigrate our position in the world it's just when you compare us to America and China on our own we are much much smaller and and actually it's it's best to be achieved full stop these these kind of developments are best to be achieved working together not just within europe but globally but actually what the european union has done within europe is develop frameworks to make that easy it, it is things like the breaking down of social barriers like it being easier to work in different nations like it being easier to have your qualifications recognised to work in different countries. And it's those kind of things that make that level of cooperation easier. And it's unprecedented. It's completely unprecedented to have that level of international cooperation on these kind of things in, 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 in a big historical context. It's almost an impossible thing to measure. What breakthroughs would we not see, or certainly would see delays to, if we were to pull out of the European Union? We, it's an impossible sort of question to answer because you don't know but if you stay in you know that you're more likely to achieve breakthroughs whether it's sort of scientific or um, technological and you know you'll be able to do them quicker and Britain will be is more likely to be involved as a as a member as a member of the EU so I think that's a that's 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 an important point to know I think I think also that this, this whole area has just not been covered has it as a debating topic no. across the kind of national agenda. And it's such a huge area that we, you know, it would be possible to delve into. But it's just people just aren't talking about it, thinking about it, or even aware of... We've had enough of experts, haven't we? Well, you know, it's just... <laughs> because it, it's not, it's, you know, it's, let's be honest, it's not the sexiest of, sexiest of topics. It, you know, it isn't. It, it's quite a lot to get your head round. But it's incredibly important. doesn't mean just because it's complex doesn't mean you know that we should just ignore it because it's not worth my brain power it's actually normally we should try to understand the benefits of it and you know make sure we were able to maximize those definitely um just another word as well so being part of this kind of effort the benefit the european union brings partly is it enables all of its citizens to have access to basically science facilities across europe um you know Mm. who knows where the next Einstein's going to come from, you know, if they were born in, in Croatia and didn't have access to what they needed, they can always, you know, they can shoot to Germany, they can shoot to Spain, they can you know, do as they will, and they can maximise their potential, which is really what the EU is trying to, trying to get done here by creating these, these common frameworks and structures. In terms of pure scientific output as well, there's, there's evidence that working internationally basically improves scientific output, and we've seen this in the UK as well. Now, let's go back in time. Before EU membership, UK scientific output, only 5% of papers were internationally co-authored, which means that 95% were not. Whereas now, we're up to 50%. 
So 50-50. Half the papers the UK produces are domestic and half are international. And there is proof, it's, you know, it's been proven that international papers basically have more, more scientific value. There's, there's more there. And it means, you know, we've seen an increase in the UK of our value from 5% to 50%. So, you know, that trend hopefully long will continue. But you can't help but think by leaving the EU that international potential is going to contract. And therefore, we're actually, scientifically speaking, shooting ourselves in the foot. The other thing as well is that pan-European sort of cooperation helps to avoid things like duplication of work. You know, if you go back and look in, in scientific history, you'll often find, take for example, the Earth going around the sun, famously attributed, I think, to Galileo. However, there's evidence, you know, of other people in, in Greece and in different parts of the world also working on the same idea. And obviously back in, in the 1500s, there wasn't the ability to, for the, these characters to talk to each other and come to a consensus. But now we actually have a wonderful scenario where we cannot do this together. Hmm. Um, not only that, thanks to you, you know, it's not just a case of these guys talking to each other, but they can actually get into the same room as each other and output ideas um and again that can only be a positive that and a, and a right for the for a, you know uk scientists that is going to be removed from them potentially after leaving the eu uh one other quick sort of to to round things off a bit more but there's uh, the case of funding essentially at the moment the in the uk obviously we're, we're in the eu we're involved in a lot of eu projects scientifically the plan for the government when we leave is that the government will make up any funding gap of any current projects. However, that's fine for domestic-based scientific projects, but there are some European-wide ones that we're UK entities are collaborating in, but they're not necessarily UK-based. For these ones, basically, the UK entities will still be allowed to take part. However, things like funding, any UK entity taking part in a European projects, the UK entity will then have no say on funding after us leaving the European Union. So it means the allocation of funds within the project suddenly is taken out of our hands. I think that, the, the, again, the problem with this debate is, A, the discourse has become zero and 100. So it's a, it's, it's a false way of looking at it to say, what will the UK not be able to do when it's outside the European Union? The Euro UK is still going to have good scientists, it's still going to have a decent like, science and technology sphere. But will it be as good... Is there any benefit to withdrawing from that system of international cooperation, from systems which just make it easier to work with other nations? No. Thank you very much, James. Uh, some really strong points made there. Aaron? Yeah, so um, I've decided to have a look at uh, the EU's impact upon uh, environmental policy and regulation in, in the UK. I think it's something that's quite often talked about in, in a kind of abstract sense. People know that the EU has a, has, a, has a big impact on environmental regulation, but the specifics of what the EU does and how they do it isn't necessarily that well discussed. And I think it's important when you discuss this topic to just kind of bear in mind where the UK was before it joined the EU. For instance, the UK had the highest level of sulfur dioxide emissions in the EU, the EU member states prior to it joining. It adopted measures such as dilute and disperse approaches to pollution, whereby landfill sites had water penetrating to the landfill to react with waste in order to cause the contaminants to become diluted and that affected the quality of um, things like water systems and, and, and rivers and lakes. And 
The general consensus is that the UK's traditional approach to policy making in this area has been reactive. When problems have arisen, the UK has generally acted after they've arisen to address them. Whereas the EU's approach to lawmaking and environmental regulation is very, very different. It is proactive. Indeed, you can look at the Lisbon Treaty, you can look at Article 191, which has uh, a specific provision in Article 1912 that EU environmental policy making shall be based on the precautionary principle and on principles that preventative action should be taken. So it's a fundamentally different approach. It's a different approach to lawmaking in this area. It's one that looks at uh, acting preemptively. And it's something we talked a little bit on last week's about in last week's podcast that environmental concerns and in particular climate change we have to act preemptively. With climate change, it's not good enough to act reactively because at the point where reactive action is taken, it's too late. And so, in in the context of environmental regulation, that's the necessary means of of, of doing things. And EU membership has changed the UK's approach to law and policy making in that sense. I think it's important to note as well, though, that the UK isn't somewhere that passively accepts EU policy. We need to get out of this habit of referring to the UK and the EU as two different things, two distinct entities. The UK is a part of the EU. It's a collaborative effort. And actually, a really, really important part of that is the EU provides a forum of enabling the UK to impose its will to act as a driving force with bringing up environmental standards across the rest of the European Union. And again, something we touched upon last week, environmental concerns are not constrained by borders. Climate change is not an issue consigned to Britain. The the pollution of the oceans affects every ocean. Air quality affects people everywhere. These are issues that are not constrained to nation states and collaborative effort is required in order to address them. And what membership of the European Union does is it allows Britain to bring environmental standards up across a wide range of different nations. The UK is in a powerful position where it can drive policy in this area because it has a direct involvement in a legislature that writes environmental policy applicable to different countries. It's an incredibly powerful position and there's no doubt that coming out of that, out of those arrangements, of course the UK will still be able to exert what influence it has on other nations. Will it be able to do so to the same extent? Will it be in as powerful a position to uh, impact upon those, uh, upon other nations? No. And it's noted by academics, for instance, um, uh, Professor Oberthur, I probably have completely butchered that name, um, at the Institution of Environmental Sciences, that on several occasions the UK vote in the Council of Ministers has been decisive in order to gain a qualified majority in setting environmental standards. So it's a reciprocal relationship. The EU's helped pull up uh, UK environmental standards. The UK has helped push through environmental standards for the rest of the continent and and that level of collaboration is not something that can be replicated outside of the European Union. The other thing to note is that acting as a bloc allows the Union to 
have much more significant impact on global change. Whether or not you think that the UK is a powerful nation, there is no doubt that it has more power and exerts more influence when it works with other countries backing it up. And membership of the European Union allows that. It allows the bloc to exercise its influence, um, an influence that's greater than the sum of its parts. And that impact of the European Union, that the, 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 the benefit and the negotiating power of that unity is seen very clearly in the negotiations that we've seen over the last two, two and a half, three years, where the EU has remained united and essentially managed to get more or less what it, everything it wanted out of the negotiations with Britain thus far. Would Ireland, acting individually, have been able to exert the level of influence that the EU has had over Britain in the Brexit negotiations? Almost certainly not. And the same applies in terms of the European Union exerting its influence on the rest of the world. The European Union is a block of 500 million people and it is a key driver for policy internationally and exerts a far greater influence by virtue of its size and scale than Britain can do on its own. Another important point to make is uh, that actually having different environmental standards acts as an economic barrier. So differing environmental standards is a classic non-tariff barrier to trade. If you have to produce a product that has to comply with two different sets of environmental standards, you inevitably have to increase production costs to meet one set of standards, standard A, and uh, have a completely different production line or change your manufacturing process in some way to meet standard B. It increases red tape, it increases costs for business. What the European Union has done is it's standardised environmental regulation across the continent. It decreases cost for manufacturers. A really good tangible example of this is energy efficient standards for electrical appliances. That's an EU measure. Electrical appliances such as fridges and washing machines, they all have to comply with them. They have to comply with the same across the continent. If the UK imposed those standards on its own, you'd have German manufacturers that, ha that, that have to comply with a different set of standards than it does with every other nation, and vice versa. If one particular EU country wants to impose a completely different set of standards, that's going to impact UK manufacturers negatively that have to operate to different standards to comply with that particular country's rules. Standardisation across the continent diminishes cost. That improves uh, matters for businesses, but also for the end consumer. The individual who buys these products, they get them cheaper. And another important point to go back to is, is one that James made in terms of science and tech. It's the same for environmental policy. You benefit from collaborative working. Regulation in this area being centralised leads to increased sharing of resources. Uh, the benefits and costs of research and development in this area are shared across the block. It creates a collective willingness to move forward together. It results in increased resourcing of joint enterprises um, across different nations, um, working together to solve environmental problems. And it leads to economies of scale, creating infrastructure to stimulate the emergence of a greener economy. And that's a really important benefit that you know James was discussing in the context of science and tech funding, but it's not just limited to that. Uh, environmental regulation and research and development is another really key key area. Um, so those are some of the general 
overarching benefits of um, being a, a member of the EU in this area. Um, I think it's important also to look at actually some of the specific measures that are taken in terms of environmental regulation at EU level. The regulations in this area affect all kinds of different things. They affect wildlife, they affect air quality, water quality, um, waste disposal. It's it's really massive and you know a few just tangible examples you've got things like the birds directive where measures were were introduced to protect over 500 species of wild birds it included measures such as controls on hunting introduction of special protection areas for particularly endangered species and the indication is that that has been overwhelmingly successful if you look at countries that have introduced that directive, you've seen an increase in population of those endangered species versus non-EU countries that haven't adhered to, to those standards. You've got legislation like the Landfill Directive, which introduced um, procedure for the acceptance of waste into landfill with a view to minimising risks. So it introduced requirements such as waste having to be treated before it's landfilled. Hazardous waste has to be dealt with in particular areas and assigned to hazardous landfill sites to, to minimise the risks associated with that. Uh, it sets up a system of permits for landfill operators, which requires operators to demonstrate things like effective methods for pollution prevention and plans for closure and aftercare when they move out. And while those measures might sound a little dull, and I think perhaps comes back to an important point George made earlier that this area isn't necessarily very sexy and isn't necessarily going to save sell front pages of newspapers, these are measures about protecting public health and about improving the quality of life of individuals. You've got things like um, bathing water directives which has had an impact on improving the quality of bathing waters and beaches across the UK where those areas are deemed to be poor then investment has to be made by a member state in order to bring them up to standards and failure to meet those standards can result in fines similarly you've got the ambient air quality directive so that sets binding limits and target values for concentrations of major air pollutants and the UK government has a track record of failing on that. Um, it's been taken up to the Supreme Court and again most recently in 2018 to the High Court it was found that 45 local authorities with illegal levels of air pollution, the government's failure to require increased action from them was unlawful. So actually EU legislation provides a really effective means of holding a government which doesn't do enough to uphold these standards um, to account. And it gives individual citizens rights to bring claims against the government where it's failing in those areas. So, and those are just a few examples of areas of law where there's a concerted effort to improve environmental standards and improve public health for um, for individuals, for citizens. The EU is a is a really important institution in raising those standards. The UK leaving it will diminish its influence on the rest of the world. It will diminish its influence on the countries within the European Union. It will place a greater risk of this government's failings not being subject to oversight by an external body that is setting high standards. And I just think this is a, a really classic example of the benefits of the European Union. And should we drop all that, this country will lose a lot.
it will lose a lot as a result of that. Thank you very much, Aaron. Uh, so on to my point. So we've gone from the incredible, well, really, I think the theme that's kind of been common through everything has been the sense of collaboration and this whole idea of together we're, we're stronger. So going from the, you know, big ideas of immigration to the scientific community coming together to make real impacts in our everyday lives to one essentially of just convenience really is my point and also value for money. So I just wanted to chuck a few numbers at you to begin with. So according to the Office of National Statistics, in 2016, our net contribution to the EU, so after our 4 billion rebate, was 9.4 billion pounds. That is 181 million pounds a week, which is 39p a day per person. And just to kind of give you another figure on that, it's 11 pounds 86 per month. So £11.86 a month, um, I thought it'd be worth kind of comparing that. Sure, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's very similar in value to a Netflix premium subscription, a Spotify premium subscription, and believe it or not, it's actually cheaper than the license fee per person. Um, mm. To be fair, £154.50 would be worth it for TMS alone. It's an extraordinary programme. <laughs> um, but all the other shite that we've, uh, I mean, we've, complained uh you know many hours about it on this podcast that bbc uh, put out and as essentially um a a state sanctioned subscription um yeah i think actually the eu gives us pretty good value and just in terms of that figure as well obviously it seems like an absolutely astronomical figure without any context eu membership so 142 pounds there or thereabouts would buy you about 57 flat whites 47 meal deals, 26 pints in London, so an average night out for us, probably. <laughs> and Aaron, I know you're partial to a, uh, a five chicken selects with fries and a Coke meal deal from, <laughs> Lad. from a fast food outlet that shall remain unnamed. And it will buy you about the same amount, about 26, so you can have one of those every fortnight. Good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And what do we get in return for all of that, apart from effectively having access to a scientific community that, as we mentioned earlier on, can have these huge impacts on our lives, for having an immigration system which tries to attract talent and improve our society. I think, honestly, sheer convenience of going about just stuff that we really, really take for granted at the moment. And it sounds like a very trivial point to make, but just... Imagine for a second you're going on holiday. Now, one of the things that we do get as a benefit of EU membership is now having absolutely no roaming charges for our mobile phones. Now, clearly, depending on which uh, provider that you use, the amount that you pay each day will, will vary. Um, I'm with Vodafone. I will reserve any kind of complaints <laughs> or, or comments on them for the purpose of this podcast. Uh, but... As, as a Vodafone customer, if I wanted to use my phone outside of the EU, it would cost me £6 per day. It kind of be, it'll vary depending on who you're with, obviously. And of course, I acknowledge in this that, you know, Wi-Fi exists. You don't need to use your data. But let's face it, we like to be on social media, as toxic and horrible as it can be. 
I mean, I'm on, on Instagram most of the time, and if not Instagram, then Twitter. So I'm going to probably use that six pounds a day. Don't know about you guys, but generally speaking, I like to go on holiday for about 10 days if I can. Is that kind of thing over a week's not long enough. Two weeks is too long. So 10 days, maybe that's what I go, like to go for. That is nearly then half of my annual EU membership paid in roaming charges for my holiday. So I'm on holiday. Um, I also potentially need to hire a car, but in order to do that, I've got to go to the post office and get a £5.50 uh, international driving permit. Now, I'm not saying that £5.50 is going to break the bank, but I don't know about you, I fucking hate filling out forms. Like if I'm in a pub and I need to get on the Wi-Fi and it doesn't auto-fill it for me, I'm like, forget it. Just forget it. It is, it is the worst thing in the world. Yeah. yeah. And I, I consider myself to be a fairly tolerant person and the amount of intolerance that we've seen throughout this whole debate for Brexit, imagine those people having to fill out forms. They are not going to be happy. <laughs> I just say one of the major ayers with the, the European Union is that it's full of bureaucrats. Exactly. Actually, by, exactly. by removing the European <laughs> Union from our lives, we create bureaucracy for ourselves. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. So the argument <laughs> yeah. of there being less red tape is actually it's false. Then, of course, if you were travelling to the EU, if we were to leave, um, then you need an EU-wide visa. Again, it's not going to cost the world, but it's more paperwork to fill out, whereas at the moment it is a given right of being an EU citizen that we have freedom of movement. And then finally, you know, God forbid something happens while you're on holiday, we have the European Health Insurance Card. Now, of course, you also need a separate insurance policy, but just reading through the number of things that you're able to get for free as a result of that. For example, if you need a dialysis, and dialysis in this country costs on average £35,000 per year per patient that has it, you can get that free uh, with the European Health Insurance Card. And I just think, obviously, I mean, thankfully, I don't suffer from any kind of kidney failure, but for people that do, it's, it's a huge benefit. There are other kind of more minor things that you're able to get um, as a result of having a European Health Insurance Card. For example, I know that on holidays, you know, in the past, for some reason, my sister will quite often get ear infections from like going in the, the swimming pool at the hotel. And that could potentially be astronomical for a course of ant antibiotics. European Health Insurance Card, it's no more than you pay for a prescription in that given country. So, I mean, I, I think compared to the kind of more grand ideas that you guys have presented, um, this potentially feels slightly weaker, but no, I don't yeah. think you can really undermine the, the amount that convenience does play in people's lives and this kind of theme of, at the moment, this seems like a given right, it's just taken for granted. And... And th this is even going into then getting to an airport and having to stand in the non-EU queue, which is nearly always much, much longer. Yeah, I, th I think the, the point of actually my, my leaving the EU, there would be more red tape and that red tape would be quite expensive to cut through. I think that's, that's a really strong point. And actually, these are the issues that really people day to day they do care about it do you know they, they can be annoying when things don't run smoothly and you know and there's a lot we take for granted because that's that's all we've known and when you take that away it's gonna change things and people are gonna be up in arms or what about this and people people like us will say you could have had this if we stayed in the eu for 39p a day for 39p a day and and, and yeah my, my last point on that is that's that's 
that's the most people would be paying for their subscription to the EU in effect, because you've got all these sort of sort of forms of revenue that the government collects as besides things like income tax and VAT. So actually, really, the, the actual figure, uh, the monthly figure to subscribe, if you like, to the EU is going to be lower than the, 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 than the sort of calculation you made. But it certainly won't be higher than that, especially when we've got, you know, a top rate of tax, for example. People are taxed at different levels. So I think, you know, that's, yeah, seems like good value, doesn't it, actually? You know, when you get your, um, you, you get an end of year, end of tax year summary, of expenditure. Oh, and how it's spent. And there's yeah, a, there's a there's a graph yeah, on it. Yeah, sort of pie chart thing. Yeah, donut. Yeah, thing. it's a it's a couple of years old. But there's this one, and it's it's off the basis of someone who's it's obviously just a picture uploaded. They pay six thousand seven hundred eighty-one pounds in tax, so they're earning quite a lot. So I think I haven't done the maths, but I think you'd have to be earning about forty grand with the personal allowance uh, to to be paying that in tax. And their contribution to the EU budget was fifty-nine quid. There you go. Out of the six thousand seven hundred and eighty pounds of tax contributions, and also, you know, you say you say it's, it's it's a trivial thing, but it isn't necessarily a trivial thing, particularly when you extrapolate things that are a you know there's consumer benefits to things like convenience across borders, but actually, if you're a courier business and you need to ensure that your drivers have all the relevant paperwork in order to be getting into different countries or to get into the Schengen area, then it's a massive cost. But not just in terms of economic costs. Like I said, I think I think the thing that's underplayed with the European Union is it's more than just a, a trading block or an economic thing. It's actually, these are things in my life that make my life easier. And better. Yeah. Yeah. Really. And just one final point, and you've, you've kind of very briefly brushed on it there in terms of courier businesses. So take that as just logistics in general. Now, as you may or may not know from the wonderful description Aaron's written in the podcast, I work for a wine merchant and like many food and drink um, commodities, the impact of Brexit potentially is going to be that things will become higher in price. So I just wanted to break down a few, a few wine facts for you and kind of give you a effectively a benefits of staying in versus the you know the effect of going out uh, in the context of a bottle of wine so gents what do we think the average price paid per bottle is in the uk well on a supermarket shelf anywhere just average including absolutely everything i reckon it's not that high i reckon i'm gonna say seven quid Ooh, I think that's I think that's there. actually quite high very actually. That's very I'm high. gonna go I'm gonna go six. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm gonna be that guy and go five pounds ninety. So George is closest, and then we proved quite how middle class this podcast is. Um, <laughs> it's five pounds thirty nine is the average uh, price for a bottle of wine. Now within that, there are obviously certain things that will, will not change. So for example, excise duty is two pounds twenty three. Cheers, Phil. Uh, it's kind of gone gradually up and I mean you can look historically over time probably from again I'm doing that awful thing of a you know very broad brush but probably from you know the Roman times um, one of the best ways for a government uh, to create money for themselves is to tax stuff that people want namely booze because in times of economic hardship or uh, economic prosperity people will drink so £2.23 is just duty um, and then you go further down the line. Uh, so that's coming out of the £5.39, by the way. Of that, £1.17 would be margin. Now, obviously, you're being sold this by a business. That price 
clearly reflects the fact that the majority of the wine sold in this country is through supermarkets, who tend to be quite successful businesses, um, even if they sort of, you know, misreport their financials for you like Tesco did the other year. Um, they're still successful. They're, they're looking to make a big margin. So very unlikely that they are going to absorb a hit financially uh, themselves. That would be passed on to a customer. Then there's VAT, which is obviously relative to the overall price you're paying to begin with. Packaging. Now, packaging is slightly different. Uh, obviously, if it's being packaged up in the country of origin, it has no effect here. But you'll find particularly at the bottom end of the market for wine in the UK, an awful lot of wine is actually bottled in this in this country. So it arrives in a big flexi tank and is bottled in kind of effectively depots up and down the land. So actually packaging costs and a weakened pound, which is kind of the point I'm very laboring to get towards, um, is going to have a really direct impact on your bottle of wine. Then there's the there's logistics, which is the point we kind of segued into on this. Obviously, if there are if there are back backlogs at ports, your wine is going to stay, you know, on a ship for longer. That means the shipping the courier is going to or the shipping company is going to charge you more. Um, and yeah, I mean that's going to add to it. And then finally, when it comes down to the actual thing in the bottle, the wine. So for that five pound thirty nine bottle of wine, fifty three p is what you're actually paying for the juice. Uh, so the actual thing you're buying. Now, if you've got a weakened pound, then clearly you're gonna be paying more for your juice. And that's at the very beginning of the chain. And once margin, etc., has been put on, um, as a consumer in this country, you're gonna to have to pay more for your wine. Wine's kind of a unique thing as well. Um, beer, you can make any time of the year. You're using a dry good um, to create it. Wine. There is one harvest in the Northern Hemisphere and one harvest in the Southern Hemisphere every single year, which means it's also intrinsically linked to, um, well, the climate, the weather that year. If there's a bad year, obviously there's scarcity that creates more volatility. So 2017, for example, was a really volatile year. It wasn't very good. Um, production was massively down. So you'll see the price of wine going up anyway. And then that's just simply exacerbated further um, by the impact that a weakened pound has had. So yeah, effectively, by staying in the EU, we pay less for our wine. So my points are basically, uh, I'm lazy and I drink too much. It's fair enough, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that brings this week's episode of the £1.92 committee to a close. Um, some really compelling arguments for the benefits of staying in the EU. Remember, folks, this coming Thursday, the 23rd of May, please, please, please vote. Use it. Make it count. From all of us here at the £1.92 Committee podcast, it's goodbye and we look forward to the next time. You can now also find us on social media. We're available via Twitter at 192committee. That's at 192committee, as well as Facebook and Instagram. So follow us and share our stuff.